afford anything but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else. So, what's most important to you, and what trade-offs will you make as a result? My name is Paula Pant, host of the Afford Anything podcast, where we explore this question. And today, I'd like to introduce Robin Dreek, who catches spies. Robin Dreek is a 29-year veteran of federal service, including the U.S. Naval Academy and the Marine Corps. He was a senior agent in federal law enforcement and until recently the head of the Counterintelligence Behavioral Analysis Program, where his mission was to thwart the efforts of foreign spies. So he's a spy catcher. He was also tasked with recruiting American spies. So basically, a lot of what he had to do within his job was generate trust. Because when you're trying to catch foreign spies, or when you're trying to recruit talented people to become spies for the U.S., you've got to be trustworthy. You've got to be the type of person who's got people skills. Robin decided to inspire reasonable, well-founded trust among people by formulating this thing that he refers to as the Code of Trust. And the Code of Trust is a system that he devised and tested as he was doing years of fieldwork in national security. And since he has developed it, he has now taught this Code of Trust to high-level executives at Fortune 500 companies, to law enforcement to CEOs, to academics, to people who work at think tanks. So the Code of Trust has been rigorously tested and has been taught to some of the highest ranking people across a multitude of industries. And again, the Code of Trust, which we are about to discuss on today's episode, is a set of five rules of engagement. And if you follow these five rules, according to Robin, then you can inspire legitimate, lasting, sustainable trust with the people around you. And so for the lives of everybody who's listening, you know, you and I may not be catching foreign spies, but we need to create trusting relationships at work, at home, in every element of our lives. So let's talk to Robin. Oh, hey, and P.S. The Code of Trust is based on five principles. Number one, suspend your ego. Number two, be nonjudgmental. And before I get to the last three... On the topic of suspending your ego and not being judgmental, all right, here's what happened. When Robin and I recorded this interview, we discussed all five of these principles, but uh, the sound file got corrupted and we lost a lot of the interview recording from us discussing those first two points. So I am suspending my ego to tell you that, and I hope that you are going to be non-judgmental in hearing it, because uh, the upcoming interview is going to be a discussion between me and Robin on... Three out of the five principles. Um, so number three, honor reason, be reasonable. Uh, number four, validate others. And number five, be generous. Robin and I are about to talk about three out of those five. I hope you'll like it. It's a good interview, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, hashtag ego suspension, unintentional. All right. Without any further delay, here is Robin on the Code of Trust. Robin, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Paula. I've really been looking forward to this last couple of weeks. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Now, all right, my first question has absolutely nothing to do with your uh, with what we're going to cover, but just purely for entertainment value, can you tell us the story of the time that you got duct taped inside your sleeping bag and carried out to... <laughs> 
<laughs> Matter of fact, I, uh, I, I, I teach this content a lot, and uh, that's probably that's one of my bedrock stories of uh, humbling moments. So, yeah, I, no problem, I can. Um, so generally it goes in line with a, a question that usually comes about was, how did you discover the code of trust? And I said, well, it, I discovered it as a series of, of events where you're giving humbling moments where it makes you say, huh, I must be doing something wrong. Um, so what had happened was I was a, as a new uh, Marine Corps officer and I was stationed at Cherry Point, North Carolina. I was getting ready to do a deployment out to the West Coast, out to the desert. And part of our, our exercises that we had to do to work up to it was we had to go down to Camp Lejeune. I was a, basically a combat air traffic controller. It's called an air support control officer in the Marine Corps. And my job was to direct aircraft to drop bombs in this bombing range the next day, mm-hmm. um, meeting about 14 or 15 other second lieutenants. Anyway, we're all sitting and sleeping in this very large canvas tent at night. And it was in the book, we said it was really hot. And in, in reality, it was actually really cold. So either way, I had the sleeping bag up over my head. We're sleeping on cots. Um, and there's about 14 or 15 of us in this large tent. And I had my sleeping bag up over my head. And luckily, I had my Leatherman multi-tool in there with me because in the middle of the night, I started hear, hearing a little shuffling, a little snickering. And all of a sudden, I feel myself being strapped in uh, in my <laughs> sleeping bag on top of the cot. And, and I, I feel duct tape going around me in the cot. And, and we're getting <laughs> nice and snug in there. Um, and uh, good-natured laughing. There's no abuse going on. But all of a sudden, I feel myself being lifted up. I mean, they're they're literally carrying me out of the tent now. And after about 20, 30 minutes of this uh, being carried away somewhere, they set me down and they go laughing off and run away. And I, I waited till it got nice and calm outside and make sure I, I wasn't <laughs> getting myself in trouble. And luckily, I was able to pry my arm out of the top of the sleeping bag with my Leatherman multi-tool and cut my duct tape out and pop my head out. And I realized they had left me in the middle of the bombing range uh, that we're going to bomb the next day. <laughs> So I was able to drag all my stuff back into the tent. They're all laughing. Needless to say, they didn't do this to anyone else. Uh, <laughs> it was a clear message. And this is one of those key critical things in life that is really, really important. And that is the difference between what we think we're projecting to the world and what the world actually sees when they see us. And so that was just one of these moments in my life where I said, huh. I think I was a great guy that got along with everyone, but obviously they were seeing something else because that type A hard charger was a little over the top. And I really hadn't learned what leadership really meant at that point yet. Hmm. So the five rules to gain trust, suspend your ego, be non-judgmental. Those are rules number one and two. Let's talk about the, the third one. Yeah, on a reason. And having, again, I, I peruse your website and everything you do, and, and I'm enamored with it because I think it really overlaps well with what I do. And, and one of the tenets of it, I think, is three is on a reason. On a reason is about the ability to maintain cognitive thought during times of really where people tend to get emotionally hijacked, either through stress, anxiety, resentment, or influences from societal norms. They don't honor reason. They honor emotion. And emotions are fine, but I can guarantee you the cause and effect of everything. What honor reason does is it maintains that as long as you understand what your goals and priorities are, you understand the goals and priorities of others, you can now make very conscious choice and ask questions about what you're doing and what others are doing that are actually going to help or hinder them achieving what they're actually moving towards and trying to achieve. And so instead of saying, oh, I feel like doing this or I hope someone does this, those are emotional things that are setting people up for failure a lot of times instead of saying wow if i just do x y and z that's actually furthering me being able to accomplish this if this person you know if i ask them about what they're trying to achieve and i ask them how is what they're doing helping them move forward to that it actually helps them rationalize and uh, remain cognitive as well Hmm. and how can a person particularly for somebody who's listening to this 
who is thinking at this moment, wow, I do tend to react emotionally to circumstances around me. How do you go through the practice of ruling your emotions rather than being ruled by them? Um, you know, for me, it came at a point when uh, I got really sick and tired of being frustrated and angry at work about, you know, fighting battles. And I just said, I'm done. I'm letting go. And I started identifying at that point, one, I don't want to feel that way anymore. I don't want to feel resentment. I don't want to feel angry. I don't want to feel frustration because they're not helping me move forward in the things that I want to move forward. In. And most importantly, as a leader, it's not helping me help others be a resource for their prosperity because I have no clarity of thought. It starts with us trying to achieve a very, very specific thing. You know, like I want to I want to get promoted. I want to make more money. I want to buy this thing. Those are very, very specific in nature. And because a lot of other people are going to have input about how that is going to happen, you don't have a whole lot of input. So in other words, you have less control. And when we have less control, and we're trying to control that creates that stress and anxiety. And that starts the whole process. So that's why you got to step back. Ask yourself when you start getting that emotional hijacking going. What am I actually trying to do and achieve? In other words, why do I want to have a bigger house? Well, ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to provide a comfortable lifestyle for you and your family. There's a lot of ways you can provide a comfortable lifestyle for you and your family, and this might not be the path. So if you can take that objective step back, you can honor reason by asking yourself, is what I'm doing helping or hindering that? Then it's easier to move forward. Hmm. And you told a great story in the book about your father-in-law's wake, I believe it was. Uh, and it was a great example of a time when you could have been carried by your emotion and you uh, you held it together very well. Yeah, you want to hear it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Please, sure. Um, please share it with the listeners. <laughs> so my uh, my father-in-law, who uh, we all love dearly, had uh, passed away suddenly from a heart attack a number of years ago. My mother-in-law held a, a wake. Well, it's actually before the wake and before the funeral. We're down in Florida. They had all moved from New York down to Florida years ago. So we're at this restaurant the night before. My mother-in-law got all the family together. My my, my wife's family is um, being New Yorkers where they're from in Long Island. You're half Italian and half Irish. This is more like an Irish wake. And so there's there's lots of uh, lots of festivities going on. We're extremely sad, but celebrating my father's passing because, we, again, we love them dearly. But what I didn't realize was we had about 30 or 40 family members in this one side of this restaurant. We'd been there for a couple hours, and the Irish were having a good time reminiscing about my father. <laughs> and it gotten a little loud and a little rowdy, unbeknownst to me. And there's a gentleman behind me that I didn't realize uh, was sitting there because I thought we had the whole side of the restaurant to ourselves. And uh, I didn't know he was there. And all of a sudden, I get this uh, pretty hard slap on the back and some four-letter expletives coming at me claiming about how rude and how disruptive we were. And he's pretty, he's being pretty uh, inconsiderate with his tone of voice. But in that moment where generally people are escalating things by countering and defending what they're doing and, and saying, it's your fault that you're sitting here or, hey, we're in the middle of a, a funeral. I decided, you know, I immediately went into what I call science experiment mode. I, I knew that this was a moment. Again, you asked, how do you get better at these things? Well, you recognize an opportunity when they present themselves to practice the code. And I did immediately. I immediately asked myself, well, what's really my goal in this? Is it to defend the family honor? Is it to, you know, make a hard time for this guy who actually, he was twice the size of me, you know, all muscled up and he's sitting there with his date. Neither of them had wedding rings. They looked to be about, you know, 10 years older than me, you know, so it's easy to assess what their goals and priorities were. He's trying to get us to shut up so he can impress his date and have a nice date and look like the big man. My goals and priorities 
was actually we, I got my kids running around. There's teenagers. There's little kids. You know, this is a family event. Instead of trying to big big man, the really goal and objective was to de-escalate. And so the, now the goal became, well, how can I inspire him to want to? And so I don't think in terms of convincing because you can't convince people of things. I think in terms of inspiring people, because when you're thinking in terms of inspiring people, you're really reversing it and making it all about them. And so I was thinking, how can I inspire him to de-escalate? That's when I said, well, what are his goals and objectives and what can I do to be a resource for him achieving them? And when he listened to his words, he said we were we were loud and annoying. And you know what? We were. And so the first thing I did was I validated that. I, I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. We're loud. We're rude. We're annoying. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go talk to the manager right now and see what he can do to, you know, make this up to you. And by the uh, and, you know, my father's funerals tomorrow morning. And also, I'm going to tell my family to uh, quiet down because, you know, we were rude and not obnoxious. And, and I really apologize for what we did to impact your night. It's funny. I, I really thought cognitively when I was doing this, I, I threw in that the fact that my father's funerals tomorrow morning because I wanted him. to I did want him to have context of what was going on in our lives because he didn't. But you can never make an excuse for your behavior because it becomes about you. So I consciously just threw a fact in the middle of my train of thought where I was, where I was validating him and going to take some action to correct just to see what it would do. And immediately his nonverbal started de-escalating. You could see he was feeling a little bad about it. And that, that is OK because my goal was to make him have a great evening with his date and feel like a big man. So I then go over to the manager. I say to the manager, hey, I really apologize. Um, we've been rude and disruptive. My father's funeral's tomorrow morning. And also, I'd hate for you to lose some customers because of my actions of my, me and my family. What can I do to help you make it up to them? And he said, oh, my gosh, don't worry about it. We've been wonderful. We're so sorry for your loss. He said, I'll go take care of it. He now goes over to the couple and starts handing out some coupons for meals or something like that. I then go back over to the couple while he's talking um, while the manager was there. And I said, um, sir, ma'am, I, again, I really apologize. I'd like to buy you a round of drinks for our, the inconvenience that I caused you tonight. And he just shook his head, you know, downtrodden and, and feeling a little low. And he said, you know, don't worry about it, brother. We're sorry, so sorry for, to hear about your loss. We've already bought a round of drinks for your whole family. Hope tomorrow goes well for you. Mm. And it's an example of, of here I am, a type A. Meanwhile, my, my wife's cousin was like, what's this former Marine FBI guy going to do to this guy with his pinkies? Um, <laughs> No, I'm not. I, I'm actually going to think about what's best for you. What are your goals and interests? And what I'm doing is, what are my priorities? I want a de-escalation. I want, and then from there on, I made it about him. Mm. With honesty, transparency, openness, with no excuses of behavior, because I am 100% anti-manipulation, anti-deception. I'm probably the only FBI guy that I'll ever, you know, that works counterintelligence that tell you that. But those things, if you start down the road where you're using any kind of form of manipulation whatsoever, which is nothing more than attempt of control with deception, you're not going to inspire trust. And once it's found out, you'll never get it back. So that's just a good example of how to exercise ego suspension is when you hit those moments, think to yourself, what am I really trying to achieve? And what am I about to do and say? Is it going to help or hinder what I'm ultimately trying to get to? So kind of suspend ego by focusing on the mission rather yeah. than... You know, rather I than call, yourself. <laughs> yeah, I call it the difference between the means goals and the ends goals. The means goals are those very specific things, like I want to win this battle. Well, in the ultimate thing, what you're trying to do is you're trying to win the war. To me, the war is very, very broad emotional states of being. For me, the ends goals are very, very – I have three anchored end, ends goals, which I honor above everything else. Number one is happy, healthy professional relationships. I will, in the best of my ability, I will never do anything either verbally or non-verbally to dishonor a good, healthy relationship with someone. Second is open, honest communications and transparency, because you cannot have a healthy relationship unless you have open, honest and transparent dialogue. And the third is I make myself an available resource for the prosperity of others with no expectation of reciprocity. 
Very key words in there is I make myself an available resource, meaning that I'm not going to impose myself on you. I'm not saying I want to help you because if I say I want to help you, I'm actually showing, demonstrating some air of superiority that I can do something better than you. And I, I don't believe that. Everyone just has different resources and I'm willing to exchange mine with yours. For your prosperity, prosperity, everyone defines it very, very differently at different stages in their life. Mine at this point is very easy. That's why I maintain happiness. It's simply healthy relationships, variety of activities and health and food and shelter. And finally, no expectation of reciprocity. If you give without, with an expectation of reciprocity, the reason you're doing it is for self-gain, and that will undermine the code. So I, I let it go. So I no expectations. Leaders don't keep a scorecard. And there you go. From there, under there, you know, prosperity for me and my family, protect national security, whatever it is. Those are also ends goals. But if you honor those three or four things, all those little minor means goals along the way, it transpires. Because once you have healthy relationships, everything flows from there. That's fantastic. Leaders don't keep a scorecard. I really like that. Yeah, well, I'm ser- how many times have people heard you know the phrase, well, leadership is about everyone else but yourself? Mm-hmm. You're, it is, but how do you exercise it? This way. Mm-hmm. You don't keep a scorecard. If, if, if you as a leader have a goal and objective that you're doing, and which leaders do, I mean, that's why the first step in the code of trust is what's your goal. But then from there, the second half of that first statement is you you flip it. So, so why should they want to? How can you inspire them to want to? And so what leaders do is they become a resource of the prosperity and furtherance of their people. And this is how you do it. Because if you start doing things because you're trying to get promoted, you start doing things because it'll make you look better, you're actually just self-serving and it's going to fall apart on you. Let's talk about the other two rules in the code of trust. So, so far we've talked about suspending your ego, being non-judgmental, and honoring reason. What are the last two? Number four is validate others. Another bedrock of human biology and genetics, as I stated earlier a little bit when talking about being non-judgmental, validation is really key to what human beings are looking for. And some people, you know, when they talk about rapport or or they think they're talking about validation, they're thinking in terms of flattery. And it's the furthest thing from flattery. It, it might entail flattery. And sometimes people say, hey, you know, comment on what a nice photo it is on their desk or what a nice blouse they're wearing today. And I'm like, that is so surface and so transparent because it doesn't mean anything. What validation is, validation is a much deeper attempt to try to understand the human being that you're engaging with. And you have to combine it with being non-judgmental. In other words, how did this person arrive at who and what they are today and, and where they are in front of you? You know, the choices they made, the background they have, whether it's their biology, their genetics or their ethnicity, their gender, their orientation. All these things are give you an amazing optic on who they are so you can know how they want to be interacted with. And so validation is really the deeper seeking to understand without judgment. And a lot of times it doesn't mean that you're agreeing with someone. Matter of fact, most of the times it doesn't mean agreeing. Agreeing with someone doesn't even come into play with it, although it can. But most of the time it's just seeking to understand non-judgmentally because human beings, that's what we crave. I mean, every time we're, we have a conversation with someone, all we're doing is we're exchanging anecdotes. We're exchanging stories, ideas, and thoughts and opinions. And what we're doing is we're seeking that the other person we're talking to is going to accept those ideas, thoughts, and opinions for who we are. We'll get a head tilt, a nod, a smile, because when that happens, our dopamine on our brain is releasing. It's all, all the pleasure centers are firing, saying this person is good for my survival because they accept me for who I am. They accept me part of the tribe. That's why validation is so powerful. Again, these things aren't a sequence, all these five steps. They're a homogeneous morphing together of all of them working together. I thought it was interesting in the book when you talked about how the difference between validation and approval, and, and specifically, you actually made a comment that really stuck with me where you said that the 
approval can actually be risky because then it puts the person at the risk of disapproval. It puts that person at the risk that your opinion of them may change. Whereas if you validate somebody non-judgmentally, that is true always. Yeah. People more times than not are looking to be understood, not agreed with. And just agreeing with someone can also come across as very patronizing as well. And I've often been asked if I've ever been accused of being patronizing because one thing I, I won't do with someone, especially in critical situations, is argue context, you know, because everyone everyone's got a different opinion of what events are from their personal context. Mm-hmm. And so I won't argue it. And someone wants to me, so you're not going to argue what are you just patronizing them and agreeing with them? I said, no, I'm seeking to understand. There's a big difference because the difference between patronizing and patronizing is just a surface attempt to to placate validation is that attempt to, well, wow, you're saying something like this. Wow, I never heard it quite put that way before. Help me understand. How did you come up with that? It's really unique as opposed to, I don't agree with that. You mentioned uh, that you don't argue context. For the the sake of those who are listening, can you please, can you define what you mean by context? Yeah, context. Um, Say, you know, you you witness an event in the news, you witness uh, political events, world events, or even events in your home at work. You know, where something happens and someone has an opinion about it and someone voices that opinion about it to you or publicly or somewhere else. And it differs from yours. What most human beings try to do at that point is correct them. Human beings, we have this incessant need to correct other people. And here's another guarantee of human behavior. If you correct someone, I guarantee you they're not going to listen to you. Their shields are going to be up and they're going to be defensive about their position. Mm -hmm. And in most of these cases, what you're trying to do is you're trying to inspire them to want to listen to your ideas. Mm-hmm. And if you argue context and context is just their optic, their perception of what that event was because of their background, their experiences, their gender, their ethnicity, all the things that make them who they are, the experiences they have between the ages of 9 and 19 that form because of all the emotional impulses that hit the brain before the prefrontal lobes fully formed. All these things impact how each individual sees an event from their perception. Mm-hmm. If you start arguing perception, you start arguing context, I guarantee you shields are going to be up. And since Everything I've ever done for the last 20 years, you know, with the FBI and, you know, nine years before with the Marine Corps is to try to get shields down information flow, because when you have information flow, you have transparency, you have transparency, you have situational awareness. When you have situational awareness, you now have you can honor reason. And so in order to do that, you cannot argue that context. So I won't do it because it's useless. What a waste of time. You know, if really the only reason people are arguing is because they want someone else, you want someone to listen to your ideas. So instead of trying to think in terms of how can I convince them to listen to me, the best thing you can do is think in terms of how can I inspire them to want to listen to me. And the way you do that is don't argue context and then ask them their thoughts and opinions about what you think. Because I'll tell you what, you want to plant seeds with someone, the way to plant seeds and ideas with someone is not by telling them what you think and what they you think they should do. Ask them what they think about what you think, because when you ask questions, it's going to rattle around in that brain a long time. It has to. That's just the way the brain works. We'll come back to the show in just a second. But first, I have a question for all of the entrepreneurs and small business owners in this audience. What if hiring could be easier? What if it could be more streamlined and less time consuming? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter 
get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish in one place. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. If you would like to give them a try, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash afford. That's Zip, Z-I-P, Recruiter.com slash afford. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash afford. And we'll keep that link in the show notes as well. Huge thanks to Blue Apron for being a sponsor of this show. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They do this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. Their seafood is sourced sustainably, their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and they have plenty of vegetarian options. Some of their featured upcoming meals include seared chicken and roasted fall vegetables, a shrimp and pesto fettuccine with spinach, and black bean and cheese tortas with roasted broccoli and lime sour cream. For myself, receiving Blue Apron meals, I find that it has two benefits for me. Number one, I don't have to worry about going to the store, buying a whole bunch of ingredients. Like, I don't have to worry about the meal prep and planning. Number two, I've actually found that I've become a better cook as a result of having these step-by-step recipes delivered to my doorstep. It kind of de facto becomes a bit of a a cooking class for me. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. If you want to check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal... With free shipping, go to blueapron.com slash afford. That's blueapron.com slash afford, A-F-F-O-R-D. You'll love how good it feels and tastes, so don't wait. Blueapron.com slash A-F-F-O-R-D to get $30 off your first meal with free shipping. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Learning, which is now featuring lynda.com content. LinkedIn Learning is for problem solvers, go-getters, and people who want to make moves in their career. Maybe you want to learn a new programming language, improve your communication skills, or master Photoshop. Everything you need to achieve more is on LinkedIn Learning, including all of lynda.com's courses. If you're looking to lead a more productive life and master your to-do list... LinkedIn Learning has courses on overcoming procrastination, time management foundations, and personal effectiveness. They also offer quick tips courses for software like Outlook, Excel, and QuickBooks to boost your productivity. I took the overcoming procrastination course, and first of all, it was only 18 minutes for the whole course. That course asks me, like, asked me to examine what do I put off, how do I put things off, why do I put things off? It had a PDF worksheet that walked me through some of these exercises. It helped me figure out some of my procrastination triggers, such as telling myself, like, yeah, I've got plenty of time, or, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. It helped me identify certain stalling techniques that alert me to the fact that I am procrastinating, like 
overchecking email and social media, uh, talked about lack of confidence and other reasons why people might procrastinate, talked about creative blocks. The video quality was awesome. I could speed up the video if I wanted to get through it faster. Of course, it was only 18 minutes, so I didn't really need to. There are transcripts below each lesson. There was a quiz at the end that reinforced the learning. And I could download the course directly from my iPhone. Um, you can also do that from Android. You can do it from Android and Apple, both. So we've got a special deal for you if you want to check it out. You can get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com slash Paula. That's linkedin.com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A, all lowercase. Thanks to LinkedIn for sponsoring this podcast. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you make this podcast possible. LinkedIn.com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A, all lowercase. Thank you. Let's talk about the uh, the fifth of the five codes of trust. Uh, sorry. The fifth of the five rules to gain trust. Right. Ah, they're principles, rules. It, they're all together. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, being generous. There are plenty of ways of being generous. And this is not like, hey, get out your wallet and, and be generous. It, it could be. But really being generous is being generous with uh, your time. Be generous with your validation. Being generous with your ego suspension. In other words, it's taking all the four things that you've just done and doing it to excess. Uh, and not at and, and the funny thing is some people can think that the code is about, you know, you might slip into the, the conundrum of, of being a carpet and being walked on and never um, because what keeps you from being walked on with all these principles is the fact that you started out with understanding where, what your destination was and you're and you're moving cognitively towards that destination thinking in terms of, you know, what I'm doing is it helping or hindering, and now we're flipping it and making it about the other person first, understanding what their goals are and making yourself a resource for them without that expectation of reciprocity. And when you add number five, when you're being generous, one, you're ensuring that you're putting others first, and you're also you're, you're triggering the, bio, the biological and genetic coding again for what's called reciprocal altruism. Ancient tribal man, you get 10 people go out on a hunt, one of them makes a kill, he comes back, everyone intuitively knows he should share. Because if he doesn't share, the likelihood of him being prosperous later on, should he become sick, lame, or injured, is extremely low to none. Mm -hmm. And so we're genetically coded to reciprocate through generosity, as well as it's just good practice for leaders to give more than they take in. Mm. And there seems to be a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. Generosity must be – giving must be done without any expectation of reciprocity. Yes. And also the way that society generally functions in the broad aggregate is reciprocal generosity. Yeah, it's a funny thing that it's hard to get away from expecting reciprocity because we fear we're not going to have what we need if we give too much. That's just our, our genetic, that's, you know, Mavlov's hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, hidden in there. But in reality, when you let go and you take care of others first in excess, first of all, you're fostering relationships and you're fostering trust. And the more relationships and trust you have, the likelihood of you having enough resources for your own prosperity starts hitting a parabolic curve and spiking upward. So you don't even have to ask for anything in return. People are just just because you're having communication, they know your needs and they're going to give it to you and you're not going to ask for it. And this is where patience hits this whole thing as well. Some people want to give. Some people don't want to give. Some people want to give today. Some people want to give a year from now. Some people might not ever want to give. 
And all of it is completely fine because it's all about them, their tempo, what they're willing to do, the relationship that they're willing to have. And as long as you're generous, because, again, what are leaders? Leaders are resources for the prosperity of those that they are leading. And leadership's not about title and position. It's about how you it's how people feel about you. It's about what you do about others. How do you practice generosity while also maintaining healthy boundaries? I get asked this a lot in different ways. I get asked, well, you know, Robin, if you're practicing the code of trust, you know, you have too many friends. How do you deal with all that? Too many relationships. Um, (laughs) I have never, ever had that problem, Paula. There's a funny flow that happens because people form deeper relationships of trust when you have a few things in play. One, you have a limited time together. You know, other people, you have limited time. You know, you only see each other once a month, once a week, once a year because of logistics. So those you don't have to worry about. And the ones that, I mean, I can honestly tell you, I probably got four or five, you know, high levels of, of trusted relationships. And not that everyone else falls short of it. It's just that the logistics, the overlapping of priorities that we both have is limited are the resources we have to foster what each of us is working on at that time becomes limited so that everything always continually has that ebb and flow. And I've never had it exceed my ability to keep those relationships healthy because everyone's interests throughout life continually ebb and flow. And so does everyone else around you. And so the ones that you have that overlapping period for a while becomes very natural. And then all of a sudden, someone gets a promotion, someone gets a new job, someone moves, someone has kids that didn't have kids before, someone gets married. I mean, all these things keep ebbing and flowing around us. And as long as you don't have that expectation that things are going to remain the same and you fear no loss, you don't hold grudges and you don't keep a scorecard, all those relationships maintain healthiness, yet they will ebb and flow out of your life. And, and these are the ones, and everyone's experienced this before. These are the people in your life that you haven't seen, that you had as a child or during high school or something, that they're your closest friends, and you haven't seen them in a year, five years, ten years, but all of a sudden you see them again, and you picked up right from where you left off. Mm-hmm. When you are exercising these kinds of things in the code of trust, that becomes every relationship. And so there's no, never a drain on you or a drain on your resources because really it becomes this majestic ebb and flow as your life and their lives naturally happen. How do you evaluate the level of trust that is being given to you by people in the outside world, family, friends, colleagues? Another great question, Paul, because that's what we're focusing on book two on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this one is the code of trust. The next one we're calling right now decoding trust. In other words, assessing trust in others. When I was first asked that question by a few people, it kind of stumped me a little bit because I don't assess trustworthiness in others. And, and here's a new paradigm that I'm really introducing with this. People have have traditionally thought of trustworthy as people being trustworthy as a black and white type of thing. They're either trustworthy or they're not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more deep than that because there's not there's no one that is completely untrustworthy in everything they do. And there's no one that's completely trustworthy in everything they do. It's actually a scale based on numerous factors. And basically, I mean, I could go into depth, a lot of depth on this one, which I won't because um, I'm, I'm still, you know, writing it all out right now. But it really comes down to this. I don't assess for trustworthiness. I manage my expectations when engaging others. And here's how I do that. One, I'm going to take it for total granted that you're going to act in your best interest all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm also in order to understand and manage my expectations, what you're going to reciprocate or even potentially reciprocate to me is I need to understand what your priorities are. 
if I understand what your priorities are, I understand what you define as prosperity, and I understand you're going to act in your best interest, I now understand and can anticipate what you're going to do in, in a lot of situations that we're going to collaborate on. And now what my job is, is to introduce my priorities and my goals and things that are in my best interest that overlap with yours. And if I'm introducing things that are overlapping with yours and I know what yours are and I now offer resources for you to achieve what it is that I've identified you want to achieve, I know what you're going to do. You're going to do it because why wouldn't you? Um, I mean, it, it's, it's the most common sense, logical thing in the world. Now, if now if all of a sudden I offer you the resources for you to achieve what I've discovered are your priorities and what's good for your prosperity. And you don't take those actions mm-hmm. that's because it's not a healthy relationship. There's deception in there. You weren't transparent with me. You weren't clear with me on what you're doing. Okay. I now know that that's not what you were doing. You have a hidden agenda. That's okay too, because I manage my expectations when I deal with individuals. I mean, think about this. There are very, very few people in our lives and sometimes they're family. Sometimes they're not that are actually vested in your prosperity unconditionally. In other words, it will take any action that you need for you to be successful and prosperous in whatever you try to do with no expectation of reciprocity. Mm. I assume no one is like that. Mm. And it's not a pessimistic way to look at people. It's a very realistic way to look at people because here and why do I do it like this? I don't want to be angry at anyone because that's a negative emotion. It's going to cloud my judgment. It's going to, it's not going to honor reason. And so because I, I refuse to be angry at anyone or frustrated or let down, I I, I love engaging with people. I love interacting with people. And the best way to do that is manage your expectations on what they're going to do. Most of the time, they're going to do things that are in their best interest. The greatest thing is the greatest relationships in life happen when your best interests overlap with their best interests. So why not discover those first and work towards that? And why, I I guess this is at the risk of a very basic elementary question, why does trust matter? Because I realized this when I, you know, a couple years ago when I discovered the code, I've been doing a number of these things. I mean, I've been teaching, living this stuff for a while, but until you start codifying things, it makes it more linear for you. Mm -hmm. And what I did was back in, I think it was 2013, 2012, 2013, sequestration hit the government. My team was eliminated. And so I was going to step down out of management, um, go back to the field and do this on the street stuff again. But one of the last things that uh, someone asked me to do was write an, another article for the law enforcement bulletin. They asked me to write it on counterintelligence. And I was like, well, well, counterintelligence, what can I write about that? I said, ooh, let me write about what I do when I'm doing a consult for someone you know, in the country for a, a counterintelligence investigation. And I took a step back and I said, what I'm actually doing in each one of these situations, whether it's these all these hooky, spooky spy stuff, double agent operations, recruitment operations, false flags. I mean, it all stuff's real. It goes on. And I asked myself, what am I actually doing every time I'm doing one of these things? And that's when it hit me. I was strategizing trust. What I quickly realized once I gave that label and meaning to it, anytime you're doing anything in life, it's going to involve another human being. Unless you're sitting on top of Mount Everest and never going to interact with another human being again. Everything in life is about relationships and doing something with or in collaboration with someone else. And no one's going to do anything without some semblance of trust. So that's why it's so important. Matter of fact, my son and my daughter, who are, are being extremely successful, my daughter's in college for nursing. My son just got in a naval academy. Every time something goes on in their lives where the natural reaction is, wow, look how awesome I am. The first thing we do is we sit down and we take an account. Who was it? Who were the relationships that we have that made this happen? Yes, you have great skills, but great skills without trust and great skills without relationships are completely useless. 
So let's honor relationships. Let's give thanks to the people that actually help you facilitate this. And so that's why trust matters most in everything. I mean, you can't even think about this. You can't even drive down the street without trust. You can't drive down the street without trusting that the car in the other direction is not going to hit you. So there's always trust somewhere. All right. Well, thank you so much. Is there is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to emphasize? Paula, I could go on for days. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did a great job. I mean, we hit the tip of the iceberg, really. Um, mm-hmm. I, here, you know, tell me a little bit more about your mission and what you're doing. I'd love to tie this into that if I could before we leave. Sure, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the people who are listening to this interview are people who are interested in what everybody, I would say, is interested in in doing a better job of managing their money. Now, for some people, that means paying off debt and just having a financially secure life. For others, that means building investments and accelerating towards a very early retirement. And by very early, I mean retiring in their 30s or 40s. So unusually early as compared to the average American. So the shared commonality is that people want to manage their money better. And that desire is not in a vacuum. That desire is because of some type of better life or improved lifestyle. Yes. All right. Good. And that's what I thought it was, Paula, because I, I want to make sure that one of the things that, as you know, too, you know, when, when you're facilitating and chatting with peers and people with like mind, you want to make sure they have tools. And I, I, So here's how I can translate what we just talked about today into that, because I truly believe in exactly what you're doing. I mean, I, I turned 50, you know, in a couple months and I'm done. I don't have to do anything else. And I could have done it earlier, but, you know, I got a government pension. So why not? Um, mm-hmm. Because congratulations. Thanks. So. As I've discovered, and I think everyone can attest to this, mm-hmm. the more resources you have, mm-hmm. the better off you are and the better options you have. And so honoring reason and really identifying those ends goals that you have and the means goals, let them stay aside. And know those ends goals for me, prosperous, comfortable lifestyle for my family and I, that is an ends goal. And it's a very, very broad ends goal. And there's lots of ways that can be achieved. And as long as you maintain cognitive thought process and not get emotionally hijacked by how you can do that. Be open to other people inputting on how you can do that because how do you do that? You have more relationships, the more trusting relationships, the more you've made yourself a resource for others, the likelihood of being others being a resource for you, at least with ideas, thoughts, all these opinions about how to do things. That's where this thing really comes to being. And the other thing that was really good for me, I feel very prosperous in my life right now. And it's because I'm doing things like you've said, Paula, and because I'm honoring the code here, because I, one, I've clearly defined for myself what prosperity means. And for me, it's very, very simple. Food, shelter, health care, and comfortable lifestyle. And there's lots of ways that can be achieved. I'm very flexible to how those things can be achieved, because if you have healthy relationships, there's lots of resources for that. And the other thing, too, that's helped this maintain cognitive thought process, I fear no loss. Hmm. there is no loss in my life. There's just change. Change means I've mastered the thing I just finished. I'm meant to move on to the next one. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the I fear no loss? There's o- there is no loss. There's only change. Yeah. I mean, I've witnessed and I think we've all witnessed this. I see so many friends and acquaintances that, you know, a simple thing like retirement. I have people and friends that are absolutely holding on to their job title and position with all their might, creating stress, anxiety and discontentment, anger, fear, because they don't want to let go of that title position. And all I keep telling them, I said, you realize all you're doing is, is your path is clearly moving you somewhere else. 
And the harder you fight against it, it's going to get harder and harder. It's not going to get easy. And what's the definition of crazy? Doing the same thing again, expecting different results. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, all you're doing is resisting your movement forward. Stop. Let go. (laughs) I mean, we've all had this situation in life where you wanted to achieve something and it wasn't working. So you fought harder. You fought harder. You started getting really frustrated. And finally, you got so frustrated, you just totally let go. And the second you let go, oh, wow, solution is right over there. Mm. That's what this is. That's exactly what the code is. It's letting go before you got too frustrated because the sooner you let go of the way you thought it was going to work, the more relationships you have, your network's going to tell you how to get forward to where you're trying to go. Hmm. So being a type A hard charger that's always moved forward to the objective, you know, steamrolling everyone along the way, mm-hmm. I'm telling you what, that does not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rob. And I really appreciate the time that you've taken to spend with us. Where can the listeners find you? All over. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, My website is www.peopleformula.com. All one word. Um, You can follow me on Twitter. It's at R-D-R-E-E-K-E. I'm on LinkedIn, Robin Dreek, and uh, I've got a Facebook author page. Really pretty much all over. You you can always feel free to try to contact me through my contact info on the website as well. I'd be happy to hear from you. Nice. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, Paula. Thank you so much, Robin, for joining us. Now, what are some of the key takeaways that we got from today's episode? Well, here are a few that stood out to me. Number one, Robin talked about, and this is sort of a theme throughout the conversation, directing responsibility inwards. Other people may treat you in whatever way in which they do, but your job as an individual is to direct responsibility inwards. Don't think, ah, that person's a jerk. Think, what can I do in order to positively influence the situation? Can I validate this person a little bit more? Can I suspend my own ego so that I can serve this person regardless of how they're treating me? Can I exercise some way of being less judgmental about this situation? Like the theme throughout everything within this this conversation was uh, starts from a bedrock of radically directing all responsibility inwards. And that's something that we covered in episode 66, which was uh, when I chatted with my friend Emma Petit, who's a brilliant real estate investor and writer and very good friend of mine. The theme of our conversation, again, was taking radical responsibility. It's something that I keep wanting to come back to again and again on this podcast, because I think that the, the bedrock of success for anything you do in money, in at work, in life, starts with taking a radical level of responsibility for the situation. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're at fault for everything. You know, sometimes it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And so again, in this conversation with Robin, in order to garner the trust of others, begin by directing responsibility for all situations at yourself. Another theme that came up is that triangle between thought, behavior, and action. So a lot of what Robin talked about, you know, suspend your ego, practice non-judgmentalness, be generous. Okay, that's great. But how? How do we actually put that into practice? And as Robin kept saying, uh, you know, answer to each time I asked how was, well, it begins with awareness. So start with awareness, meaning start with thought, and then let your thoughts influence your behaviors and actions. And the more you do this, the more it becomes a positively reinforcing cycle because your actions also influence your behaviors and thoughts. You know, each point on this triangle influences the other two. 
So start the chain reaction somewhere, and the more you do so, the more that that chain reaction will continue to feed itself. So that's another takeaway that I got from this. So that was another lesson that was reinforced by today's interview. Another thing that I really enjoyed about today's interview was when Robin made the following remark. I don't think in terms of convincing, because you can't convince people of things, I think in terms of inspiring people. Because when you think in terms of inspiring people, you're really reversing it and making it all about them. Don't try to convince people. Inspire people. It is far better to lead through example and through inspiration than it is to try to control a situation through brute force. If you approach a situation with resistance or with a wall or with an iron fist, you will be met back with resistance. But if you flow into something, then you will be met with flow. I realize that sounds a little esoteric, but there is no other way for me to say this. If we approach the world with resistance and with walls, then the world reflects that back to us. And uh, conversely, if we don't, if we approach the world with a soft hand, with flow, then we, we receive the same in return. So that was what I heard from Robin's remark about, you know, don't try to convince people. Don't try to rule people. Inspire them. Let them come along on their own terms and in their own time. And that coincides nicely with some of the other lessons and themes that uh, we kept repeating throughout the interview. Validate others. Suspend your ego by focusing on the mission rather than the self. Give context, but don't make excuses. And very importantly, leaders don't keep a scorecard. Leaders don't keep a scorecard. It's funny because on the surface, this interview is about earning the trust of others, both in in work and in life. But really, this is beyond just a conversation about trust. This is a conversation about creating calm leadership. And that calm leadership comes from being mission-focused, suspending your ego, being attentive to others, taking responsibility, and rolling with the punches. And if you do those things, you are likely to do better at business, to have better relationships, to have that joy and that feeling of prosperity and security, which are the ultimate end goals. So that's what I took from the conversation. I would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave a comment at affordanything.com slash episode 101. That's affordanything.com slash episode 101. Oh, hey, would you like a free copy of Robin's book, The Code of Trust? Well, guess what? We've got three copies to give away. All you got to do, you've guessed it, is go to Instagram at Paula Pant. Look for the uh, Instagram post that has a picture of the book on it. When you find that post, leave a comment. You can say whatever you'd like. We will pick three random commenters and send you a free copy of the book. Congratulations, by the way, to all of the listeners who uh, won copies of The Secret Lives of Introverts, as well as You Are a Badass at Making Money, which are two previous books in which we've also done these giveaways. These things are fun. I love hearing from you. It's a great way to like find out what people think of these interviews and, uh, you know, just to get the community together. So and you get free stuff. So cool. It's like a win, win, win. Anyway, head to Instagram at Paula Pant, find the photo of this book and leave a comment. In order to win, you must be in the United States, or at least the mailing address at which the book is sent to must be somewhere in the U.S. 
And your deadline for leaving a comment is Friday, November 17 at 5 p.m. Pacific time. If we choose you to be the winner, we're going to contact you by Instagram. We're going to send you a message on Instagram. So just check your messages to see if you hear from us. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player, whether that's Podcast Addict, Overcast, Stitcher, YouTube, however it is that you are tuning into this, please leave a review. And while you're there, hit subscribe. Coming up, we have an interview with Will Bowen, the author of A Complaint-Free World. This is Paula Pant, host of the Afford Anything podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Catch you next week. Catch you next week.